We are not inventing anything. We are not developing new technology. We have no patents or anything. We are designers. So we apply or present or deploy this technology in a new way by means of design. From the Harvard Graduate School of Design, this is Future of the American City. Conversations on how we live where we live. I'm Charles Waldheim. We're here today with Rodolfo Curi, architect, educator, and urbanist, whose work focuses on smart cities and embedded technologies. Rudy joins us today to discuss his work in technology and the public realm. Welcome, Rudy. Thank you. So you, after, you know, the um, the notable international career that you've had as an architect in practice, career level at Fong, having taught at a, at a range of world-class leading institutions in architecture and urbanism, you made a choice five years ago to move to, to Miami full-time and take up a leadership role at the University of Miami. Why was that the right choice for you? And why was Miami the right place? I mean, it's not like one day I woke up and said, I would like to move to Miami because this is the right move. It just happens that I was aggressively recruited, given an offer I couldn't uh, refuse. And now in retrospect, it does seem like this was the right move for me, but it wasn't really calculated. It was more the possibility of seizing that uh, opportunity. Well, you know, of course, the University of Miami School of Architecture has played a disproportionate role in the history of our field in the last several decades, the last half century, arguably. And so, of course, it's an important and significant institutional role, but it was presumably also the city itself that was in part attractive. It, it was both, really. Of course, I'm very interested in the history of the, the school and the role it has played in the evolution of the discourse and the practice. But the interest of the school in me was a bit surprising because I'm not the most obvious candidate given my investment in emergent technology. So to be involved in these processes that are transforming the field is very important. But also I am interested in all the scales at which we see this transformation from the scale of the object to actually also the, the city. And in terms of how I relate to the trajectory of the University of Mayan School of Architecture, it's basically at the scale of the city. And how will you engage faculty and students in that work? Like how, how does that, that get organized at the University of Miami? So when I arrived, Five years ago, I brought the, that lab that I had in Toronto with my colleagues, uh, Carol Mohyber and Christoph Markopoulos. So there was an extension of that effort in Miami. So the RAD lab, so it was called the RAD UM. And what do you mean by RAD in RAD lab? RAD, <laughs> uh, I'm going to be honest here, RAD used to stand for Responsive architecture at Daniels, <laughs> which is the name of the. Fantastic. <laughs> but now it has been uh, transformed to responsive architecture and design. That's rad. Yeah, that's rad. That, yeah, so responsive architecture and design, UM, at the University of Miami. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. And so help me understand. So the idea is with, you know, the kind of coming Internet of Things, you know, every component, every element of the built environment will be communicating in some way. We'll, we'll have information for us. Right. So, so like we know how technology transforming everything, also the way we design, etc. But in this case, it's technology is not only an instrument for construction, design, management, workflow, etc. But actually, it's a, we think of it as a 
an ingredient, a building material. So we're embedding technology. Like we have this graphic motor where we show a brick plus a microcontroller equals question mark. So the idea is that to think of the possibility of embedding this kind of intelligence or connectivity into every building material and just see what happens. Mm. You, you have this formulation. Tell me if I have this right. Every brick is communicating. Right. Yeah. Well, this sounds terrifying. To <laughs> oh, at least every brick has an IP address, right? So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's I'll, there. I'll, it's you, you can we can pin it down on the. It has a presence on the web. I mean, there's something about the idea of the juxtaposition of the brick, right? I mean, in some way, the most ancient, the most archaic, the most foundational building material. But a part of what your research suggests is that not only bricks and buildings, but also urban environments, landscapes could be communicated. So as they communicate, like what, what kinds of things might we be learning from these environments? Like what kinds of information might we be gathering? Right. I mean, much of the discussion on the Internet of Things and smart cities has to do with the possibility of collecting data, digitizing and deploying big data as an instrument for a more informed decision making or management of the city and architecture. But the, of course, there's much more than that. So, for instance, one of the lines of research that we are very interested in is how we can start to think about customization for the city, for the large scale. Like we tend to customize our private environments. There are multi-billion dollar industries devoted to this. But once we step out in the public realm, there's no such a thing as customization, right? It almost sounds like a contradiction or an oxymoron. Because by definition, so supposedly, the public realm is the common denominator that has to accommodate mm. everyone. And it tends toward, in certain contexts, the lowest common denominator, or at least right. the most generic. Right. But because of the technology and the possibility to enmesh all of these building components of the environment into this web of communication, we can start to orchestrate precise responses to individuals in the built environment. So I can, I can give you an example. In this smart city we are designing in the Yucatan, it's called Zen City. It's uh, right outside of Merida. There is this kind of digital platform that serves as an interface between the citizens and the city where they can fine-tune, calibrate the municipal amenities. So, for instance, they can go online and specify what kind of public light they wish to have. So the, do they prefer very bright so because they feel safer or do they prefer something more discreet and dimmer? What kind of color temperature? So, so if they happen to be walking alone, then the municipal lighting, public infrastructure accommodates to their user profile and then will deliver the light that they prefer. But... Of course, if there's more than one person, then there's some kind of averaging. What I quite like about the example is that you could imagine a situation in which this is something that is app-based, in which the individual citizen has some agency, either individually or through some collective or political process. One could also imagine some kind of, you know, algorithm or machine learning over time to, you know, interpret human behavior and respond. Right. And this seems like a very different um, scenario than right. the kinds of um, surveillance and 
data kind of privacy right. concerns that we see around the topic in so many places. Right. But of course, if the, the lighting is going to respond to you, it means that you are being watched and tracked. And <laughs> so this, the idea, the problems of surveillance and privacy are always, you know, very challenging when we're working in that territory. But whenever it comes up, when I, sometimes I when I present something like this and there's a reaction from the audience, I remind them that our notion of privacy is, is constantly transforming. For instance, uh, Kodak cameras were prohibited on public beaches in the U.S. for quite a while. I think it's not until the 40s that they were allowed. This is a very interesting story. I don't know if it's true, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't look I read that about it. From a good story. But it's fascinating. Apparently in the 19th century in Paris, when they... Haussmann started, you know, the transformation, the boulevards were introduced. And most importantly for this discussion, artificial lighting was introduced. There were some protests because it was seen as an invasion of privacy. They saw the privacy eroding due to this kind of technological intrusion. It's interesting because it's so remote, like this idea, but that tells you how understanding of privacy has evolved mm. since. And I suspect that we will see this kind of evolution in relation to those new technologies. It's well put. I mean, I think that the history of science technology is kind of littered with those kinds of negotiations. Right. So it, I, I guess one of the questions I've got has to do with the role of sponsorship. So this experimental city in the Yucatan, Zin City, who are your partners in it? And does that in any way give you uh, greater confidence? So it's a private project and the site is adjacent to a science and technology park, which is funded by the federal government. So it's capitalizing on that adjacency. Zen City is conceived as a tech transfer hub. Uh, so it's, it's a group of private investors and uh, developers. But as the project evolves, I think it will gain more and more government support. It's a great group of people who are really like visionaries and they are very optimistic about technology and they have like the, the ethos is very much like a Silicon Valley sensibility. They use the same jargon. They talk about disruptive technology. They think of the, the city, they, they think of it as a startup that has the capacity to imagine a completely different lifestyle. I mean, given the kind of the beauty and the kind of environmental quality of the Yucatan, it, it reminds me that uh, quite a lot of your interest in smart cities technology and responsive environments has not simply been about built environments, but also about natural environments and the landscape. And I wonder if you could say more about like the role of these technologies in thinking about questions of sustainability or right. the, the, the kind of um, building healthier natural environments. Right. Actually, that's, of course, that's a big part of it. We have like three big teams for Zen City, and that's one of them. You, you know, the Yucatan is famous for the cenotes. You know, they are these sure. yeah. right caves that... Uh, you're, you're meant to dive in them, and yes. blue water. and yeah. Right, the beautiful underground environments have water and that are uh, part of that, the cultural imaginary. So we have this kind of system of reservoirs for collecting stormwater actually under deployed under the main public squares. So it has that cenote quality in the sense that it is shaped in a very particular way, but also it's accessible to the public and actually also 
include some amenities like a small library, etc. So it's like a, it's a public underground public space with water. It's like a cistern. It reminds me a bit of that those that famous cistern in uh, Istanbul, the Roman reservoir. So it's a piece of infrastructure for remediating and collecting stormwater, but it's also public space. Resonates with the public cultural imaginary around the cenotes, etc. So fascinating. So this is in the, on the one hand a kind of a new kind of innovative urban type, but it's also drawing on the history of the, the Indian step well, the regional kind of uh, geology. So in, in those kinds of examples, you're interested in not just the Internet of Things or wired responsive environments, but the ways in which design can play a role. And I take it from, you know, from some of your writings, some of your, your, your public comments and your TED talk, that you, you think that in some ways maybe the conversation about smart cities and the conversation around the Internet of Things hasn't really benefited yet from being thought through from a, the point of view of design. Is, is, that a, is that a fair sense? Right. No, absolutely. And I also repeatedly insist that we are not inventing anything. We are not developing new technology. We have no patents or anything. We are designers. So we apply or present or deploy this technology in a new way by means of design. It is that particular way in which it is used and presented that we think of our contribution to the field. For instance, one known example from the Toronto RAD days is that the smart blankets with, that serves to basically track sleeping patterns. So what's interesting about it, it's easy to just attach sensors to a blanket and then collect the data. In this particular case, the electronic circuit itself is the decorative pattern like the floor it looks like a floral pattern on the blanket and we reinvented the blanket and its decorative motifs to perform as a data collecting device we just we didn't just glue the technology on it and this is what we try to do in all these projects is to land the technology in an interesting way in order to allow familiar objects to perform in this new way. I mean, parts of that project remind me very favorably of the work of um, Christoph Wodichko, artist who's done quite a lot of interesting installation work around accommodating, you know, people that are sleeping rough or sleeping in the, in the open. And at the same time, as you accommodate them, his work is most often also making them more legible in a way in the, in the space of the city. In addition to responsive landscapes, I know that you've had an interest in questions of health, public health, and health facilities, healthcare facilities. Is that also a part of your research here? So when we speak of embedded technology, responsive environments, etc., actually one area where they are most likely to flourish is in the healthcare space, because this is where you want spaces to perform optimally and where you can actually justify the cost because it you know it it yields safer environments that are better equipped with handling the task at hand so yes many of the projects have this healthcare application which led me to become more and more interested in this field and my commitment to starting a healthcare design program at the, the School of Architecture at the University of Miami. So we are we have been working on this for a while. We've had a soft launch, so to speak, for a master's program focused on healthcare design. It's now one of the areas of concentration in, in our uh, master's of science in architecture. Eventually, it will become a standalone professional master's dedicated to 
healthcare. There are a number of these now emerging because there is a great need for them. But what will be particular about ours at the University of Miami is that it will address also the large scale at the UM, at the School of Architecture. Even when we talk about the individual building, we are always thinking of the urban context because of the DNA of the school. So we will be addressing these issues at the scale of the individual building, also the individual room in a healthcare facility, but also at the scale of the neighborhood, the district, etc. There is, of course, a growing now, actually an entire field emerging around well-being, health, at the scale of the, of the city. It's a very exciting uh, emerging uh, discourse, and we are at the forefront of this discussion. And in linking you know, that idea of the, um, the medical environment, the hospital environment, thinking about you know, from the scale of the patient and the kind of data-rich environment of patient care to the kind of nested scales in which these complexes grow – it strikes me that you're proposing a kind of continuity across scales. I mean, from the very beginnings of the conversation about public health in the Western city, the, the beginning of the mapping of pump handles in London, there has been this aspiration to bring a more empirically based or evidence-based approach to thinking about health in the city. And it strikes me that your interest, your proposition around information in the city is really a continuation of that rather than something completely new. Uh, that's a very int- interesting insight because it touches also on this idea of customization, but frames it in a different way. So it's not so much about the individual projecting their desires onto the public realm, but the possibility of being able to have a sense of ownership, individual ownership over the public realm or the p- pieces of infrastructure. So I'll give you an example. So we developed this project where it's a photovoltaic array to power the some of the municipal services. But in, the, in this case, each panel in this array is actually assigned by means of an app to individual cit- citizen. So the app responds to the actions, the behavior of the, the panels. And it moves only when the owner is moving, is active. And it, the panel has to move because it has to catch up with the trajectory of the sun. It has to optimize its orientation to become more efficient. But if the if its assigned owner is not moving, then it falls behind and it's less efficient. So there's out there in that piece of infrastructure that is assigned to you and that is rotating, trying to keep up with the sun, and you are keeping it... <laughs> it's, a, it's a powerful image. So, the, the, so in the same way the Fitbit or the smartwatch have gamified your own healthcare regime, yes. you've, you can somehow gamify and engage, you know, human curiosity and the obsessiveness right. of individuals. They have gamified public infrastructure. But what's interesting is that you have a sense of ownership. You can, there's this piece out there, you can point to it, and it's yours and you are responsible for it. This kind of building this relationship with public infrastructure at the, the individual level is part of that uh, kind of vision of the city, not as this indifferent platform, but something that can be talking to you individually and that you are responsible for. But this kind of gamification of health speaks to what you were saying earlier about the the whole discontinuum between smart city, big data, health, well-being. There was a a conference at the, the Radcliffe Institute a year and a half ago on this question of data and decision-making. 
And in that, what one of the things that, that we saw was that while there's a, a robust, you know, discourse for several decades now around behavioral economics, this is now an established body of mm-hmm. economic thought um, that humans are not rational actors and we still carry around these kind of pre, pre-human brain lobes and make choices that are not optimal, that similarly there's a group of people engaged in what's putatively being called um, behavioral policy. Right. And so it strikes me that this gamification, the engagement of the human brain with how to harvest energy in a most optimal way and also have a sense of personal individual investment in a in a public utility. That strikes me as a good example of this idea of a kind of behavioral policy, understanding how to engage citizens. Oh, that's great insight. I never linked this idea to this behavioral policy discussion. That's uh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, one of the maybe optimistic takeaways from that conversation so far has been that while we know that more information has not historically produced better decision-making for humans, <laughs> the distribution, the decentralization of decision-making that your project is proposing is one way to work around that. And it, it strikes me that this simultaneously does two very interesting things. So one thing that it does is it decentralizes and diffuses the role of the single professorial or managerial class, the person in the lab coat who's making all the decisions, who's increasingly inundated with information, but not necessarily increasingly able to make better decisions because of the amount of information. And at the same time, this project of yours proposes to more fully engage individual citizens in the work of the city, its life, its infrastructural life, its metabolism. Yes. Depiction of the big data in those nefarious terms, you know, as in terms of surveillance, manipulation, etc., really don't take into consideration the dialectical opposite of how citizens may be empowered also by those technologies and big data access to the information and the data and how it may prompt participatory uh, citizenship. And uh, actually, we have seen how this is playing out. It is very much so like there's increased participation and engagement because of the link that is being made between the the citizen and the infrastructure that is more attuned and responsive to their actions. So it's not only collecting data, but it's actually be it's offering the possibility of their participation in its shaping. And is it your sense that this wider accessibility of information could be thought of as a kind of uh, democratization? I mean, in the context that many are concerned with four or five, you know, very large monopolistic firms in one culture, having all that data to, to do with what they will. Yes. When we talk about Facebook, Google, etc. Yes, there are these big firms monopolizing this kind of information. But when we're talking about cities, public infrastructure, I think it is, am I naive in assuming that actually, no, we can still think of uh, open source, accessible data, civic hacking and avenues of participation and access to data. So that's an interesting question. So we've talked about your research, um, your interest in the development of the RAD Lab at the University of Miami, and uh, your interest in healthcare. Can you tell us more more broadly the direction that you see the School of Architecture at the University of Miami taking under your leadership and 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 with the advice and consent of your colleagues? So what's interesting about University of Miami in general and the School of Architecture also in particular is that the university is very much you know part of the city. 
It doesn't have this kind of adversarial relation that you find sometimes. And you know what? I think it has to do with the football team. Football is big and the whole region, the community, all identify with this team. And by association, I think, is with the university. So the university community is not only the academic community, this faculty and students, but it's the, it's the entire city, so to speak, because of, I think, it has largely to do with the love for the, the athletic teams and especially the football team. So this kind of favorable kind of sympathy sets the ground for a very interesting, productive collaboration relationship we have with the city. So for instance, the School of Architecture has historically always been involved in the affairs of the city. The zoning code for Miami called Miami 21, which was actually developed by the office of the former dean, Liz Batter-Zyberg, was also incubated, tested, uh, explored also in the context of the School of Architecture. So everybody really participated in this very important project. Many, many things that characterize Miami, like for instance, there is a consensus forming now. There is like a kind of a mobilization. It's, I, think, I think it is exciting around the issues of adaptation to sea level rise, urban resilience. So... We had a new president three years ago. As you know, with a new president comes this uh, important effort is the strategic plan. Actually, Julio Frank, our president, likes to call it the roadmap, which is a better way to think about it. So we have been engaged in this parallel process at the School of Architecture, uh, trying to establish our roadmap. And urban resilience has emerged as the focus. Like this, It's very exciting to think of a school having one single dedication, everything focused on this problem. And I think it's only possible in Miami because there is an existential threat. It's the sea level rise, you know, it's a very serious problem. We, we cannot afford not to invest all of our resources, thinking efforts into this issue. So there is this problem solving ethos that has developed and there is a shared dedication or focus on adaptation and sea level rise which is energizing the school. So yes, it still is this very heterogeneous place, but we are all united in this shared mission now, which I think is exciting. And you mentioned the, the school's uh, legacy, its history of being engaged in the future of the city, and in some ways using Miami as a kind of test bed to then impact the discipline, impact the profession more broadly. Because, of course, you know, you, you mentioned your predecessor, Dean for two decades, uh, Liz Platter-Zabrak, who we're speaking with in this series as well, uh, authoring through DPZ, Miami 21, the planning guide, but also a spatial planning guide, not one which is just about policy, or right. just about regulatory, but in fact, the commitment to a kind of urban design right. that characterizes Miami and its history and the University of Miami School of Architecture's contribution to that. In that history, can you share with us what are the projects that you can imagine going forward uh, around this question of resilience, adaptation, and your engagement with the city? Right. So given this dedication, the new focus, which is really the result of our reflection and uh, strategizing, we are not trying to orient, well, most, if, if not all of our upper level sponsored studios towards that goal. For instance, like excited about this new partnership we have with uh, Perkins and Will, we'll be funding 
studios that deal with this problem. So this is one example, but it's emblematic of this effort now that we will spend on investing all of these studios in this particular arena and in real world problems. So we will have supporters from the industry, but also we will have interlocutors from the, the city in real world problem solving situations. In addition to sea level rise, among the effects of anthropogenic climate change are increased storm event, changing the loss of, loss of species, but also changing biomes and the statistical inevitability of another big storm event. I recall in 1992, the impact of Hurricane Andrew and the response of faculty at the University of Miami and the city and the region responding with what is now, I think, viewed widely as among the most progressive and resilient hurricane building codes in the world. By the way, we tend to focus on the gradual, long durée of the sea level rise, but actually, I think, more decisive in its impact on Miami is going to be the that occasional big storm that's going to be devastating and then actually have consequences. So yes, you are right about the Andrew. And it's actually a very important moment for the school because it is Andrew and the consequences of Andrew that created our Center for Urban and Community Design, the CUCD, which emerged almost like organically from the all the efforts that the school was involved in aftermath of uh, Andrew, they had charrettes, uh, projects, participated in various uh, citywide efforts, etc. They were extremely active and engaged. And uh, to such an extent that finally all of these efforts accumulated and were formalized into what is now our CUCD. But they emerged as a response to that uh, storm. So, and the CUCD is our consultative arm, so to speak takes on projects. It has been very active, for instance, in Haiti after the earthquake, but continues to have projects there and all over the Caribbean. It's interesting to know actually how it emerged in a moment of crisis as a response to Andrew. So the Center for Urban and Community Design in the School of Architecture at the University of Miami is a good example of an institutional response to a set of social and environmental crises. And we know that Miami was founded in this place, which was this Venn diagram between a kind of semi-tropical environment, access to the tropics in the context of the legal and economic and cultural system in the United States. It's not a place that would be built on geological terms. <laughs> the limestone geology of this part of the world is utterly different than the the river clay-based systems of New Orleans or New York or Rotterdam for that matter. The solutions that you're developing here will be different than would be developed elsewhere. But it's true. I mean, we see in our work in Miami Beach, there's so-called nuisance flooding and the elevation of streets. And the city of Miami is already beginning to deal with the effects of anthropogenic climate change, sea level rise and storm event. In that regard, what roles can the School of Architecture at the University of Miami play as the city uh, takes these challenges on? I mean, you're right, change, especially mitigation and to a certain extent adaptation also. But Miami is a very different situation. And this is why you can have a school kind of completely mobilized and focused on this issue. It's because, yes, this is a global challenge, but it is particularly acute 
uh, in Miami because of the conditions you described. Solutions are not obvious. It's actually an existential threat to the city. I mean, it's uh, really tragic. So uh, at the same time, we don't just get depressed about it. We, we are making a big effort in trying to see an opportunity in this. So given the circumstances, the tragic outlook, we recognize that we have a, a big, important role to play. We recognize that we are uh, clearly a major player considering all the resources we have at the university and the, especially in our capacity to collaborate with other units. We are already positioned as one of the key participants in this big ambitious project to deal with this uh, threat. And we are just getting ready to do it. I mean, we are already doing it, but I think this is going to escalate, especially when we start to see the, the first signs. There is no uncertainty about the the fact that the sea level is going to rise and to the extent that it's going to be a devastating condition for Miami. So we, I said earlier, this is also, yes, it's tragic, but it's an opportunity in, opportunity in the sense that we will have the resources, we will have all the concentration, the dedication, the attention in uh, and the right positioning for dealing with this. So it's, it's also, it's tragic, but it's also exciting. I tell this to students who are actually joining us now and who are at the beginning of their academic careers and professional careers that actually this is a great moment for them because they will, they are, they'll be participating in this uh, very big and important project. Right? I wonder what you make of this. I mean, given the what you describe as an existential threat and the change that will come, on the one hand, I sense your optimism about the future and that there are opportunities here as well. And of course, the School of Architecture, University of Miami, has historically, its faculty and leadership have played a disproportionate role in the city's past, its formation, its, its growth. And I understand from your comments that they will continue to. What do you make of the fact that uh, in the course of the last nine or 10 years, the city seems to be booming? I mean, um, you know, every time I'm here, there's a <clears throat> a new range of buildings. While it's always been of a of a certain architectural prominence, uh, increasingly the city, you know, the skyline is populated by buildings by signature architects of international reputation, and increasingly the city seems to be in part seen to be desirable by people from all around the world who want to be here now at this moment. And as you say, the seas will rise. How how do you think about that? Is that a contradiction in your mind? Yes, I mean, <laughs> this is the very Interesting question. I don't know if it can be answered, but let me say something that may shed some light. So five years ago, our supporters, which are mainly developers, you know, they sponsor studios. They are very much engaged with the school. Our We have set multiple boards, you know, dedicated to different programs we have. And most of them are populated by developers. As you know, the developers are a big presence in the city and in the school also. Although they were supportive in many ways, I think they were always reluctant, hesitant to support initiatives that deal with uh, sea level rise because I think they thought that they, they were worried that it would like spook the market or something like this to, to bring too much attention to this issue may actually not be favorable to their core businesses. But that has changed. It's very interesting. 
within just a few years, that attitude has changed and many of these developers are actually pushing, leading the discussion around sea level rise and adaptation. And they don't seem to be so worried about how this may be the end of their business here. Actually, they are confident. They know that they should raise awareness around these issues. They want to address it head on. They are leading the charge. They embracing that future in a very optimistic and vigorous way. So if I sound optimistic, it's because I have faith in that kind of the ingenuity of Miami and its uh, leaders, its citizens in dealing with this problem. It's true what you say about the development community broadly and its role in building the city. It strikes me that there are uh, a generation or more of uh, developers who really have had a hand in building modern Miami. And I, I've come to share some sense of your optimism for their ability to address the challenge. That Do you share uh, that optimism when you think about civil society, the public discourse, and the preparedness for these challenges? I'm uh, attuned to the thinking of uh, public officials, government officials, the academic community, my colleagues, but also the developers leading the charge now with regard to these issues. But I'm not entirely sure how aware that the general public is with regard to this question. I think we need to do a lot of work here in terms of communication and education, bringing greater awareness uh, around these issues, because I... I haven't seen yet a very robust public discussion around those questions. So a major research university in a city facing an existential crisis identifies from the lenses of public health, medicine, law, engineering, architecture to mobilize a university-wide response. What other disciplines around campus should I be including in that list? I, In my mind, the flagship, so to speak, is the... Rosenstiel School of Marine and Atmospheric Science. And they are a major player and partner in all of our interdisciplinary activities. Also, President Frank also has is very much determined to break the silos and encourage interdisciplinary research. So there are many incentives, including very generous research grants from the university to fund uh, interdisciplinary teams. It's a great program that has already yielded very interesting results. And for the School of Architecture, uh, you, you've been in longstanding training architects, urbanists, to now have programs that engage with the medical school, to engage with public health, to engage with uh, marine sciences. This this does strike me as both progressive and, and interesting as a catalyst to effect some change. Yes, it was an interesting shift. I mean, I never discussed it with my faculty because I've been ruminating about this. Is the language used in our promotion materials, etc., referred to architecture as a civic art. There was a lot of emphasis on art. So that if you think of architecture as some discipline in that spectrum between art and sciences, I think we were more comfortable being in the more, a bit more towards the arts. I think we have shifted now towards the science and engineering, not abandoning the art part, but I think that the, this kind of problem solving ethos that I see emerging at the school 
has shifted the kind of the center of gravity in that spectrum. It's interesting. The moment perhaps that schools of architecture saw also in the 60s as they assimilated the social sciences also in that moment. And in some ways, I mean, what you're suggesting is that this kind of return to the the techne and return to the societal engagement of architecture in a way comes after several decades of, you know, architecture benefiting from its own cultural autonomy, its own position in the arts, let's say, of course. And um, and in some ways suggests both opportunity, as you say, like a newfound relevance, a kind of a relevance for our knowledge and a relationship to addressing societal and environmental concerns. Does that come at a cost in your, in your view? Is there a downside to being engaged, being more instrumental in the world in addressing these societal and environmental challenges to the field of architecture? No, none. I'm going <laughs> to say it. without any hesitation, it's actually, there is no downside. There is greater relevance. There is a, an expanded field of operation, more possibilities for colonizing, so to speak, adjacent fields and claiming some relevance in those, but also most importantly is the social and economic relevance for architecture in becoming a problem solver that is grappling with very urgent problems. So, so. Does this suggest to you um, changes in the, the education of the architect? Right. Although I don't hesitate to say that we can only gain, though, by having to adapt or slightly retool our architectural pedagogy. So my colleagues are sometimes frustrated with me because I have no patience for purely theoretical, speculative explorations. And I'm really trying to anchor pedagogy in real-world problems. So that's very different. Like, it's a different mentality. When we think of the architectural pedagogy and, you know, how we teach the content concerned with problem-solving, then we may lose something about the free, open-spirited exploration that used to perhaps be characteristic of... uh, architectural schools, especially during that moments when that architectural autonomy was uh, affirmed. Would I be right in taking your comments to suggest a kind of really long dialectic between those issues? I mean, a part of what I take from you is like, these are really, you know, disciplinary professional formation on the one hand, and then, you know, being relevant to societal environmental issues. Mm. Of course, this is a long durée problematique in our field, and you're simply returning to engagement in the world. Um, Right. Yes. You're right. Actually, when I arrived here, in order to quickly engage the school with a core preoccupation, I suggested that the theme of the call to order for a series of exhibitions and lectures to basically position the school and its commitment to, you know, fundamentals in relation to uh, what I observed as a wider international reinvestment in typology, history, etc., especially in Europe, like Belgium, Switzerland, Italy, etc. But in the introduction to the book that followed, I made this claim about this kind of dialectical process. And I say, yes, we 
we can talk about a return to order and to reaffirm the fundamentals. But what's interesting about this moment is that it's not an, a claim for autonomy, but actually for an expanded field for architecture, embracing science, the social sciences, engineering, ecology, etc. So back to fundamentals, but not without a claim for autonomy. Rudy Alcori, Dean, School of Architecture, University of Miami. Thanks very much. Thank you for the great discussion. You've been listening to Future of the American City, curated by the Office for Urbanization at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. This conversation was supported by the Knight Foundation and the generous donors to the American Cities Fund. Our producers are Aziz Barber, Charlie Gilliard, Jeffrey S. Nesbitt, and Mercedes Peralta. Music is by Kevin Graham. To learn more, visit votac.gsd.harvard.edu.